It's episode 109 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast on earth that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from beautiful Stores, Connecticut in the Lakeside building. I'm Tom Breen, joined as always by my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Tom. How are you? I'm good. The more I think about it, the more I think the lakeside is kind of a misnomer because it's not really a lake. We're next to uh, – Yeah, it's, next a, to, it's a pond. It's a pond. But we call them lakes here for some reason. We do. I mean, you think about like Lake Michigan. <laughs> oh, boy, we're not even close. No, we're not. It's a beautiful name though and it's a beautiful building. It's a gloomy day. It's not so nice out today. No. We went from 90 degrees to 40 degrees here in good old New England this week. Yeah, it's it's early June, but it feels like March. It's fun times. I was wearing a winter coat while watching fireworks <laughs> in my town on Saturday night. <laughs> I kind of like it because it means I don't have to turn the air conditioning. That's true. I did put it we did put ours in our window units and then didn't need them. Didn't have to use them anymore. Didn't need them. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, we've got an exciting show. Good show. We've got a really good guest. But before we get to meet our guest, we've got some news because people, people, they want late breaking news. <laughs> they tune into our <laughs> monthly-ish <laughs> podcast. What, no. what, what's some exciting news that you have, Julie? I thought that some exciting news to share. There's this cool project that a bunch of professors and different people at the university are involved in called Feel Your Best Self, which is puppetry. Um, it involves Sandra Chifulius, who's a board of trustees, distinguished professor of educational psychology. She's one of the co-founders. And they have this award-winning video series that uses puppets to help kids and caregivers develop coping skills with what Sandra says is some of the yucky stuff that we all deal with. And they actually just got some really cool news that New York's 13, which is America's flagship PBS station, has added the Feel Your Best Self videos to its weekday learning program called Let's Learn. And they're also available for free on the Let's Learn website. So congrats to them on that big, exciting thing. And you have even more exciting news, Tom. <laughs> I do. It's construction time. Yeah. Summer, summer is construction time. Summer at UConn means one thing. It means detours. Yep. There's actually a new residence hall being built at South Campus, which is mm, pretty awesome. That is awesome. It's going to have 657 beds and a 500-seat dining hall. And oh my goodness. it's scheduled to open for students in the fall of 2024. Okay. But before we get there... There's a whole lot of construction that needs oh, to happen. yeah. A lot so, of digging. So if you're going to come to campus this summer, check the website of the UConn Planning, Design, and Construction folks because they will be posting road closures and road detours. That's the big work that's happening this fall, but maybe the most prominent work is that Gamble Pavilion is getting a new floor. Mm-hmm. They've taken out the old floor, the historic floor. That was the original floor, right? That was the original floor. Okay. And there is going to be a way for UConn fans to purchase parts of that floor. I want like a pencil made out of the floor wood. Could they yeah. do that, you think? I'm not sure if it's going to be. No, probably not. Probably not. It's probably a little like plaque with a little, you know, hey, this was a floor that all these people played on. That's cool. That would be my guess. But yeah, that's that's going to happen. And the new floor, which is maple, is going to be ready this fall. What was the old floor? The old floor was, I don't know. So I'm going to say Sequoia. <laughs> Highly doubtful. Probably I not. want to purchase enough of it to put in my bathroom. Yeah. I can't do that, but I think there are going to be some people with money who will do things like that. Yeah, I'm not sure what's called. I actually bought a piece of the floor where the Final Four was played this year. Oh yeah, a very small piece, and it was like sixty bucks. It wasn't that bad. Is that like a temporary floor that they then just like break up? Yeah, they immediately sell? break it up. Yeah, I've been actually. This is a perfect segue, which oh. I didn't plan, but I was going to plug UConn Magazine, which comes out on June fifteenth. Drops in mailboxes that day and appears online that day. And I've been delving into the world of merchandising because we're doing something pretty cool. I can't talk much about it. I don't know how much I can actually say at this stage, but 
there's going to be something exciting and you're going to be able to buy it for yourself if you would like in honor of this year's national championship. So Very cool. I have an article ready for that. in the magazine. You have a fantastic article which goes with this cover story that I'm alluding to terribly. For some reason, I'm worried people are going to get mad at me because I always worry about that. Why would people get mad at you? I don't it's know. like you the never most, know. like, it's, it's, how could you disagree with this article? You, well, well, you never know. I know. You already tweeted it, <laughs> mostly. Mostly. Twitter doesn't exist anymore. It's, no, nobody pays attention to Twitter anymore. No. I get depressed every time I go on it. <laughs> so I try not to go on it so much. You know what I never get depressed, though? What? Talking to our great guests. I so, agree. Let's meet the person we're going to be talking to this month. Let's do it. Margaret Lloyd Seeger is an assistant professor in the Yukon School of Social Work who teaches courses in substance use disorder, research, program evaluation, and social policy. Her professional and practice background includes clinical work with children and adolescents affected by parental addiction at the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence and as a civil litigation paralegal. She now studies mothers and infants with prenatal substance exposure, Child Protection Policies and Systems, and Family Treatment Courts. Professor Lloyd Seeger is leading Connecticut's evaluation of the implementation of the Federal Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, which is known as CAPTA, and that requires states to collect notifications when infants are born and found to have been exposed to certain drugs in utero. So we're going to talk to her about that and some other work that she's been doing. Welcome to Yukon 360, Margaret. I was reading up on you and I saw the statistic that nationally about 12% of children live with a parent who abuses alcohol or other drugs, and about 80% of parents in the child welfare system have substance use disorder. And you really dedicated your career in many different ways to helping these families. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to this work to begin with. Yes, I would be happy to. I am a person in long-term recovery. And so for me, that means I've been clean and sober since September 7, 2010, which is a really exciting milestone. Previous generations of my family weren't able to achieve it. And some were, some weren't. And as a part of my recovery journey, I started working in the recovery world, basically. My experience at the National Council in Kansas City, Missouri, where I got sober is included in that. And in that setting, I was working with children as young as five through teenagers who themselves were in substance use treatment, all of whom had grown up in homes affected by addiction. And when you get into recovery, at least the abstinence-based recovery that I adhere to or align with. We're taught that addiction is a disease, very important framework for understanding the disorder. But I saw kids whose parent all had the same disease living in incredibly different circumstances. So some kids were living in a shelter, some kids were living in foster care and other kids were going home to their, you know, very nice suburban home and going to summer camp. So while I was teaching all these kids, your parent has a disease, it's not your fault, there's nothing you can do about it, you didn't do anything to cause this, I couldn't explain why some kids had presumably comfortable lives and others didn't. And that is what really led me to my area of research, to social work, to the Social Work Academy, to get a doctorate in social work. So my work applies the social sense of health framework to understand addiction sort of 
prognoses among families who then end up encountering the child protection system. Ideally, we write policies and come up with evidence-based interventions to divert families from, from that outcome, but really recognizing that it's everything around the addiction that leads to the family's experience. Certainly, we want great treatment. We want everyone to get access as soon as possible to every everything they need, but, but child protection involvement is not because of the addiction. It's because of everything else, um, you know, systems of racism and poverty and all these structural factors. So uh, recognizing that I have a lot of privilege and that's what has enabled me in my recovery to, you know, go from being an underemployed, dependently housed person to a now tenured professor. As of this <laughs> congratulations. Morning. Oh Thank my you. God. Congratulations. Thank you. At at UConn, you know, a lot of that had to do with my privilege as much as it did my recovery. I lived in West Virginia during kind of the early years of the opioid epidemic. And I remember when there were attempts to address it through legislation, a lot of policymakers there would say, there's no point in creating programs because this is an individual issue. It's just up to the individual to, you know, address this. And I, I get the sense that you probably disagree with that. But I was wondering if you could talk about some of the programs and some of the policies that have been shown to produce good outcomes. Absolutely. So what we know is that the earlier you intervene, the better the outcome is. There are certainly inflection points when someone may be just in the life course, particularly open to treatment. Crises can sometimes be one of those moments. Pregnancy is another moment. So we find that people, even with an active untreated use disorder, will often reduce use during pregnancy. So there are, you know, in the sort of life of an individual, there are certainly moments when intervention can be more effective. But if our systems aren't set up to make the best use of those moments, then we aren't going to get anywhere. So some, at least in the context of the work that I do, family treatment courts are an evidence-based intervention that happen typically after a family has already lost a child to the foster care system. So the child is in placement and these courts are set up to move the parent and family through the post-placement process to reunification. And Unlike traditional child welfare courts where a person might go to court once every six months, they're really high intensity. So a person goes to court once a week at the beginning, and then as they progress through the phases of the program, the intensity goes down, but there's still just a level of hands-on wraparound attention given to the parent and the children that doesn't exist in traditional models. So again, we're identifying them as early as possible, and we're putting a lot of supports in place. Again, the sort of cognitive effects of use disorder on memory, retention, concentration, etc. can really impact how long someone can remember to go do something. So the more supports that are in place to make sure, okay, we want someone to go to treatment, but we're not going to just like call them and tell them to go to treatment. We're going to pick them up. We're going to take them there. We're going to really support them through the entire process. 
So that's one model I work on and of relevance to some of my more recent publications and the work I'm doing in Connecticut. We are seeing good results with Connecticut's new policy. So that's at an even more macro level. But what's happening here is that I substance use and pregnancy is identified as early as possible, ideally in pregnancy, but if not in pregnancy at the time of delivery. And then what's now being called a family care plan is put in place, again, identified as early as possible, connected to supports that are addressing not just the use disorder, but housing, food security, parenting stuff, and then any potential developmental supports that the baby might need as early as possible. So those are the principles that really should guide best practice. And then I, of course, would be remiss not to also talk about stigma. So, you know, this is such a stigmatized disorder, particularly when it's present in pregnancy. And so the more we can, as a system, really educate providers on the nature of the illness and teach providers to meet these pregnant people with compassion and treating people as humans, treating moms as moms, babies as babies, recognizing that even in the midst of a use disorder, a parent still has an instinct to protect their child and love their child, that that paired with these structural pieces is really critical. And you're talking a little bit about the work you're doing in Connecticut. So you did publish in the fall a study in the journal Hospital Pediatrics on how Connecticut's CAPTA notification system is going. So you're saying earlier intervention is better. And when these infants are identified to have been exposed to substances, Connecticut is kind of flagging that. Can you tell us a little bit about those findings? It sounds like Connecticut's doing a pretty good job at this and why this should be a model for other states. The legislation that guides Connecticut's policy is federal. So every state is supposed to be implementing what is called in the federal legislation a notification, which is different. Everything else is called usually a child welfare referral, a child welfare report, a child maltreatment report. So this term notification is something distinct from a traditional, I'm going to call it because I'm worried about abuse or neglect. And in addition to the notification, uh, plan of safe care is what it's called in earlier iterations of the federal legislation, but they're moving towards, there's a, an impending reauthorization in the Senate right now that calls them family care plans. Plan of safe care is also kind of stigmatizing. Inserting the word safe into the first thing is sort of implying lack of safety. So family care plan. The federal legislation, though, is um, to be defined better, and the impending reauthorization includes more definition, but it has left a lot of leeway for how states are implementing this policy. Connecticut was the first to interpret that notification mandate as this is just data collection. We're just trying to use the public health principle of disease surveillance to understand population prevalence of a condition so that we can monitor where it's happening when, to whom, so that we can target against systems-level resource distribution. And so in 2019, this policy passed in 2016, or this big change happened in 2016, uh, Connecticut, again, by 2019, had rolled out their policy, had launched this online portal that was specifically engineered to collect this 
anonymous notification data. So there's no identifying information on the mom or baby. They're collecting race, ethnicity on mom and baby, the type of substance exposure, whether it was detected using an infant toxicology test. And then it does ask questions about infant safety and an untreated use disorder and things like that. And if if the answer to any of those questions is yes, then a typical referral to child protection is made. But what our system has done and our publication points out is that over half of identified infants are the the anonymous notification is the only thing that's happening. So we're literally just collecting data on prevalence of exposure in order to have it be just that anonymous pathway. The family also has to get a family care plan. So it means that these over 50% of identified mother-baby dyads are leaving the hospital with a family care plan to go on their way and hang out with their newborn, (laughs) bond, (laughs) attach, breastfeed, you know, develop. One of the most important findings is that this system has enabled a non-punitive pathway to all it does is provide this supportive family care plan mechanism. And then what we've also been able to glean is that of the families who do end up getting a maltreatment report, what are the characteristics? So there are, of course, always concerns about race disparities in all of our systems, but particularly systems that are historically punitive. And what we're seeing is that it's the substance of exposure that is really predicting the likelihood that a child maltreatment report will be made. So infants that are being exposed to, you know, cocaine, PCP, other illegal drugs, multiple substances at the same time, those are the infants who are being reported. Infants exposed to prescriptions, including medications for opioid use disorder, are much, much more likely to have that diverted outcome, which is, again, what I have argued is the whole point of the federal policy and to Connecticut's credit have implemented a, a policy that's doing just that. One of the, the great things about social work, I think, is that it's so easy to see the connection between research and then action, right? So along those lines, you helped develop a piece of basically model legislation with the Legislative Analysis and Public Policy Association. I want to make sure I get the name of it right. Is it the Model Substance Use During Pregnancy and Family Care Plans Act? Do I have that right? Yes. All right. So could you tell us about sort of what that act says, what the goal of it is, and just kind of how how does the process of writing legislation for people who will, most people will never do that? Yes. Well, and I, (laughs) this was my first experience. So I only have this to go off of. I was one of the contributing members to an advisory board that worked with LAPA, the organization that writes the legislation and hired, you know, a lot of lawyers on the LAPA end actually writing the legislation. But what we as an advisory board got to do is really guide the principles that were embedded in the legislation, define some terms. And part of what I was hoping to do, and I think what was achieved with the legislation, is make sure that the scope is contained. Because what has happened in a lot of states who are seeking to adhere to this notification mandate that's present in the existing federal legislation is now they're just reporting every baby who's identified with exposure to their child protection system. And that is not what we want to happen. That is not best practice. That is not 
there's no reason to do that other than stigma and misinterpreting this federal legislation uh, or an impulse to kind of punish people who use substances. So what we did in the federal legislation was specify that the scope is infants affected by substance use disorder. So again, the real point here is to connect pregnant people and their infants who have a substance use disorder to treatment, recognizing that pregnancy is one of those inflection points when folks are maybe more ready to get into treatment. They're just interacting with healthcare professionals more. They're already trying to reduce their use in pregnancy. So how can we leverage that inflection point to make treatment accessible? And then also to for parents who are in treatment, celebrate that, make sure that they don't get DCF called just because they're in treatment for their use disorder. And then simultaneously make sure that supports are in place for not just the person as a person in recovery, a person with a use disorder, but as a parent. So supporting them through breastfeeding, through early parenting, supporting the baby's development, everything I talked about. So that's one of the distinctions that we made is that it should be families with use disorder, infants affected by use disorder. We also debated back and forth as an advisory board whether we should recommend universal screening for use disorder in pregnancy. There are several articles in the literature documenting race disparities and who gets screened, who gets tested, et cetera, always to the disadvantage of Black and Brown mothers. So one theorized antidote to that is to just screen everyone. But there are other studies that suggest that, well, it's really hospitals that have some sort of like risk-based screening criteria that those actually exacerbate race disparities. So we went back and forth on that, but the legislation basically recognizes that, the model legislation recognizes that, says there was some debate. I'm on the side of universal screening. And so in addition to that, again, to try to mitigate race disparities, um, ensuring that this legislation is implemented in a context of structural support at the state level. So there needs to be an advisory board that includes people with lived experience whose perspectives are going to shape how the legislation is being implemented in each individual state. There are these perinatal quality collaboratives that exist across the country. Most states have them at this point. I think leveraging those organizations to be involved in the adoption of this type of legislation, again, so that it doesn't just become a child welfare thing, a child safety thing, a child protection thing, that it's really, we're all taking accountability for it. I'd be remiss in my duties as a university publicist if I failed to mention that the school social work is celebrating its 75th anniversary. We and are. As a school of social work at a public university, it's played a big role in shaping generations of, of social workers in, in Connecticut and in the region. Social work can be a very challenging profession. The, the work itself is hard and, and no one goes into it to get rich. If you, you know, had the ear of policymakers, you had a wish list, what are some things that could be done to make social workers' jobs easier? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think the first thing is just making sure there are enough social workers. So, um, you know, rather than hiring one person to do an impossible 
a job that one person can't do. If you have a large enough team, any job can become manageable and rewarding and fulfilling. So I know in schools right now there, and actually there's some legislation happening right now that is all about putting lots more social workers in a lot of different spaces, like with police and social workers have been in schools for a long time, but more social workers in schools. And so while that's great. We also want to make sure that folks know that we can't fix everything, (laughs) (laughs) that we do have a scope of practice. So, you know, important members on interdisciplinary problem-solving teams, but social worker isn't the fix-all band-aid. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we do... We do certain things. We do them very well. Certainly, I'm a macro social worker. So the path to social work engagement in policymaking itself, in leadership, in administration, in legislation is really critical to ensure that we do get it right at a policy level, that we're using social work effectively and for the right right sort of reasons and in the right scope. So again, social work can be really rewarding when you feel like you can succeed. And the best way to feel like you can succeed is to have a manageable workload and a scope of practice that you can actually accomplish. Well, Margaret, we could talk for a long time, I think, and the School of Social Work is a very special place. So all kind of exciting things going on over there. And thank you for doing the work that you do. It's really inspiring. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Do you have anywhere you like to plug or anything? Should people follow you anywhere? Oh, I am on social media. I try to engage my professional pages. I'm not (laughs) great at it, but I am on Twitter and on Instagram. And I'll happily follow you and engage with you. But anytime anyone's on the Hartford campus, I mean, come check us out. We are, yeah, just doing awesome work. We're a great community. And we now do have, I do want to plug our bachelor's program. So we have a BSW program that's on the Hartford campus. You apply sophomore year to start your junior year. It's a cohort model. And then of course our MSW and then our doctoral program as well. So anyone who's interested, I had a master's in psychology actually and switched to social work at the doctoral level. So any master's in social science, come to social work. It's (laughs) very rewarding. And we are always interviewing potential doctoral students. So great. Go to socialwork.ucon.edu and find out more. I miss the School of Social Work. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. It is. Oh, that was great. Yeah, she is an extremely accomplished researcher and does a lot of really cool things at the School of Social Work. So stay tuned for Margaret and her work. Absolutely. And uh, you know, now it's time for a little history. Yay! It's it's the year 2023 as we're oh, recording this. That just blows my mind. Presumably you're also listening to it in 2023, although I don't know. I can't say it that might for not sure. Be. Bleep Bloop could be hosting you on a, <laughs> on a retrospective from 2050. Sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. People are looking back on this valuable historic document. <laughs> I hope so. But I wanted to talk about some anniversaries because I like anniversaries. Okay. Even though my my old editor, Evan Burland, hated anniversary stories and he would always say to me, the passage of time is not news. (laughs) In some respects, that's true. It is true. You know, it's an accomplishment for something to last a certain amount of time. It also gives people a chance to kind of like think of where we are. Like, wow, we're this many years from this event and it wasn't that long ago or whatever. Right. So 2023 has a lot of interesting anniversaries here at UConn. It's the 140th anniversary of the very first graduates 
Okay. 1883. Wow. Six, six lads received their certificates on June 27th, 1883. Okay. Cool. It is the 130th anniversary of the school becoming officially Stores Agricultural College and formally accepting women, although women had been going to school here for years before that hmm. because Benjamin Coons was a believer in co-education and even though it was against the law – for women to attend school. He was just, just like, well, yeah, whatever. Just do it. It's mm. cool. Benjamin Coons. Also in 1893, we were designated Connecticut's land grant university. That's a pretty good anniversary. And Yale immediately sued. <laughs> they are want to do. They were awarded $154,064 in damages, which in today's money, I have no idea. It's a lot. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. Actually, went on the the, the inflation calculator I, I found oh. did not go back that far. Oh, okay. Then I'm not going to try. But there might be a better one. I don't, I don't know. think I'm any better at the internet than you are. <laughs> but despite the fact that Yale got that money, they're not Connecticut's they're land not grant. Land. Well, you know, I mean, if we're thinking about like what land grant means, Yale is in the middle of a city. They're right. not like an agricultural school. Yeah. Also, it feels a little – I know there are some privates that are land grants, but it just feels a little yeah, weird. Yeah, it should be a public university. Yeah. Nothing against Yale. No. No, I understand they they have some good academics there. I don't want them to sue us. <laughs> 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 just kidding. No, I love Yale. Yale's yeah. beautiful. But bula it bula. Just, it just feels like, you know, you have to have some land to have a land grant. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey. <laughs> I should be a writer. September 15th, <clears throat> 1933, so that's 90 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Charles Lewis Beach of Beach Hall fame. Beach Hall fame. He died five years to the day after his retirement and 25 years to the day after becoming president. That's pretty wild. Yeah, that's pretty so wild. So September 15th was like a really big day in his – In his life, yeah. There was, must be something in the stars about yeah, that so if you like believe in like charts. Three – I think Shakespeare also died on the day he was born. That's this is pretty kind of weird. whack, yeah. 1943. It's 80 yeah. years ago now. Mm-hmm. Nine Japanese-American students oh, left internment camps and became UConn students that fall. UConn was the only school in Connecticut, one of the very few on the East Coast, to accept Japanese-Americans who had been interned during the war. I really like when we can celebrate things like that, where we yeah. did the right thing. Yeah, and they they were very successful. Kei Hayakawa was one of them who went on to play both baseball and football here and was a standout in both teams. So it's a really neat story. We've talked about it yeah, before. But yeah, yeah. Also in 1943, the School of Law and the College of Insurance were hmm. acquired. They were separate institutions. UConn, they merged with UConn in 1943. Okay. In the 60s, the College of Insurance was merged into the School of Business. Okay. But as we've talked about on this program, the School of Law just celebrated their 100th anniversary because yeah. before they came to UConn, they had a little history. But they've been with UConn now for 18 years. Or 80, I'm sorry. 18. <laughs> just 18. Eight, just 18. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just 18 years because it's well, 1961. What was the College of Insurance before? It was the Connecticut College of Insurance. Okay. So it's a separate institution. Also in 1943, it's a big year. The first women who were engineering majors started awesome. taking classes. And the first Catholic chapel on campus was built. And it burned down in 1946. Wow. And St. Thomas Aquinas was built two years after that. Mm-hmm. 1953, 70 years ago now, mm-hmm. was the football season that began at the brand new Memorial Stadium, Aww. which is no longer with us. I sort of wish we had a campus stadium. I definitely wish we had a campus stadium. And the three times a week Connecticut campus became the Daily Campus. There you go. So hey, sev- hey. 70 years of daily publication. Pretty good. Daily, week daily, right? Well, right, yeah. yeah. But still. But still. Yeah. In 1963, 60 years ago, Homer Babbage became UConn's eighth president, would be a legendary president. Mm-hmm. And in 1973, 50 years ago, that was the last year diplomas were issued on real sheepskin. Oh, my 
God. Yeah. 1973? 1973 is the last time you got your sheepskin and is it actually sheepskin. Didn't know that was actually a thing in general, but... That's, well, that's where that's where that this, that's where the the term comes from. Now, did nothing happen on the half like twenty five years ago, or did you just ignore those dates? No, there were things that happened there, but there were so many. In the, they were not as not as. Yeah, I figured I'd go on the the decimal system. Okay, that's it. We're ending in nineteen. That's it. So, uh, everything after that, who cares? Eighty three, ninety three. Who cares? Frankly, can you believe twenty thirteen was ten years ago? No, I don't know what happened then, but I like that makes me want to vomit a little bit. I was working here. Yeah, I was almost working here. Close to it, six months from working here. Yeah, that's that's upsetting. It's upsetting. Passage of time. It is, is upsetting, upsetting, especially for a, a zoomer like me, a zoomer, a Gen Z. Gen Z. <laughs> that's one of the hip. I'm a TikTok teen. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there are people who like just pick this up once in a while and believe you when you say you're 21 years old. <laughs> I, don't, I hope not. I'm not 21. I'm folks. I'm 25. Anyway, I started working here when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's it for this month. This uh, month. We are. We are monthly. First week of the month is what we have decided. Yeah. I, I don't want to promise too much, but we do have two colleagues who are interested in pitching in. So it might end up being that we have – we might More. return to a, a biweekly schedule, but we'll see. We'll see. We're not promising anything. Yeah, we're not going to promise anything. <laughs> You're getting this for free. It's not like we have a Patreon. <laughs> I'd feel bad if we were charging money for this, but I don't. I don't feel bad. No, I don't feel bad at all. It's perfect. We are giving you a gift. <laughs> yeah. You should feel lucky. Yeah. You, in fact, you should thank us. Yeah. Yeah. Send, we're, us, send us your letters of thanks. Yeah, we're the thank you cards. Stephen Winchley, you don't have to send us a thank you card because we know how thankful you are for UConn 360. Oh, my husband got a little upset. He's like, I'm your biggest fan. Oh. Ooh. I called Stephen Winchell my biggest fan or our biggest fan and – I mean, he has to, though. He's married yeah. to me. Like, it's not, yeah. it's not the same. Yeah. Well, again, thanks, everyone, for listening. I have a little thing to plug. I'm going to be on WILI Ooh. on the morning of June 9th. I'm going to be yeah. talking UConn trivia ahead of <gasps> the magazine. Sweet. It's going to be online. So if you're not in the greater Willimantic area, you'll be able to listen to it on the internet. I'll tweet out a link that's at TJ Breen. I'm on Twitter, the, the ghost site that – is increasingly horrifying, but, you know, <laughs> I can't stay away. <laughs> Julie, anything you want to promote or plug? Just UConn Magazine on June 15th, magazine.uconn.edu. Keep an eye on your mailboxes if you are an alum because it is very exciting what we did for the National Championship. And it is really great. You'll find out soon. You're going to love it. All right, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.